to Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Good morning. So we are in a series called The Original Playlist, which we're going through the Psalms this summer. And um, if you haven't figured this out yet, when we say track, that just means the psalm. So today is track four, which is Psalm 4, which is what we're preaching out of. And this morning we're hitting a different genre of psalms that we haven't hit yet. And when you read through the psalms, you get a lot of like uh, the hymns, this emotional ascent that is this, people are doing great, they're, they're in joy, they're singing praises out to God. And a lament is like the opposite end of that. Um, a lament is, I'm not doing well. I'm, I'm in the valley. I'm in a dark place, and I'm just crying out to God for some kind of relief. What's interesting about Psalm 4 is you have two things that are going on here. You have a psalm that's a lament, but you also have a psalm that's a psalm of confidence. And those two are intertwined together to show us that even when we go through a dark time, that we can have confidence that God will deliver. So let's just jump in here. Verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And I don't know if you see that sandwich of thoughts there, but in the middle of this sandwich, you have this confidence in God that he's going to deliver. But then on each end of that, you have, I'm crying out to you, answer me. I'm, I'm calling out to you in prayer. And you have this, on, on the ends, this call out, this cry out to God to rescue. And even in the middle, you have, you have answered me when I've called out before. So you still have this, this moment right here, I am still in distress. I am in distress and I need you to deliver me. And the, the specifics of why David is in distress here, they're not quite evident. If you flip back to Psalms 3, you'll look at that, and it's, it's easy to see that all the scholars agree that that was when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. He had all these enemies that were surrounding him, and he's just crying out for God to help. He had no friends. He was alone. He hid in caves oftentimes. And, and this, you get a little bit different flavor in the Psalm 4. It's a lament, but it's almost like it's a cry out um, for a community. There's something that's happening within the community that they need relief for. And, and some of the scholars actually believe that this is probably something like an agricultural problem, like they were having problems with crops and they're crying out to God for deliverance to rescue them, to increase their crops, to increase their wine and grain that we'll see a little bit later on. So this is, has more of a, a community. You know, maybe it was caused by a natural drought or some kind of um, uh, natural calamity. And this was a regular problem for Israel. Um, they often went through these periods where they had droughts and they had problems with food and, and they were wondering where, it was gonna cry, um, where their relief was going to come from. 
But what you see Israel doing here and what David is responding to is because of this, because of this place that they're at, a lot of Israel has turned from God and they're seeking relief from false gods. They're turning their back on God and they're running to other things and asking to be saved. So when David pleads with God to hear him and answer him, he's, he's crying out on behalf of all of Israel because if they continue down the path, they'll be lost. Their, their prayers will not be answered. And it seems that David alone is the only one who's crying out and pleading with God at this point. David is the only one who is praying to God for relief. We had our, our sync meetings this week, and our sync meetings are our city group leaders and our apprentices, and we get together once a month. And we were talking, and Nate was leading us, and he asked us a question. He said, you know, describe a time in your life when, you're, when the season of prayer was really rich. And so we began telling these stories of, of rich seasons in our life, and it shouldn't be a surprise to you that, that most of us of what we shared was some of the darkest days of our life when we had the richest times of prayer. And I think there's, there's good reason for that is because sometimes when we get to that point when we're going through a valley and things are dark and we don't know where relief's going to come from, we're almost forced to our knees. There's this aspect of this of like, I have no idea how I'm going to get out of here and we're just forced to our knees and we call out to God and say, God, just come and rescue us. Come and do something, because if you don't do something, we're going to be completely lost here. It's times that we're, we're out of control that we call out to God and ask for help. But I got news for you guys. We are always out of control. And sometimes when things are going good, we think we have control. We think we have, like, put hedges around ourselves so that we can control all our circumstances and, and things are good. But we need those times. We need those valleys to realize that we are not in control. And that we need to get on our knees and cry out to God for relief. Um, Israel kind of went through a cycle of this. They would be lost and, and running and rebelling from God and things would be bad. And they would cry out to God and they'd say, God, come in and rescue. Step into this. We need you. And God would come and they would rescue them. And then they would sing these praises and these hymns out to God and rejoice and then things would continue to go good, and then all of a sudden they would get to a point where they'd be like, you know what, I think I'm responsible for this good right here. I think this is me. I think I've done this. And they would keep walking down this path until they would just depend on themselves and their own self-confidence for so long. The guy would say, well, you know what, I'm just going to remove my blessing from you because you're not walking along with me. You're not giving the credit where credit is due. And he removes his presence, and they continue on this path where all of a sudden calamity begins to hit. And they start seeking other gods and things get really dark until they get to this point where they're like, okay, we have to get on our knees now. We have to pray out. We have to call on God to rescue us. And then God comes in, rescues them again, and they rejoice and they sing praises. I mean, it's kind of what we do, right? Sometimes it takes a moment like that where we can't do it within our own power, that there's no possible way that we can get out of a jam or out of a valley, that we cry out to God and we say, God, help me where I'm at. Um, when I began a, a ministry called Revolution many years ago, it was kind of my first real leadership experience. And I went through these, these nine months, we had 37 leaders and went through this training for this young adult ministry. And it was awesome. Like things were so good. There was so much excitement that was going on. And we finished our six months, and all 37 people that went through the, the training were still there, and nobody had even moved away, and they were all just gung-ho about what we were doing. And that summer, I went away to Africa on a mission trip. I led a team there for three weeks. And like halfway through my trip, 
I got a call and it said there's some dissension going on. Like people are just splitting and there's a group that just said, hey, we're not starting um, our ministry fast enough, so let's just go off and do our own small group. And they began meeting in this group, all these leaders that we had trained for six months, they began meeting. So I got back that summer and we were gonna launch this ministry in the fall that next year. And that whole summer was just trying to put out fires that had happened. And I know a lot of it was my fault because I didn't put proper leadership in place that while I was gone, that things just fell apart and crumbled. But it was like that whole summer was just involved with, with putting out fires and trying to get people back on this. I'm like, we're, we're just a few weeks away from launching this thing. Just stay with me. And two weeks before we began this ministry, we had this, this meeting where we brought everybody together and there were seven people that showed up two weeks before we launched this ministry. And three of those people were not even people that went through this, this training. So we had like one third of our ministry and our leaders that went and started this group. And then half of it was like, man, well, this, is a, this is a split. This is horrible. And so they, they just kind of dropped out. And I remember leaving this meeting with these seven people and I, I just was driving home that night and I just cried. I just bawled my eyes out and I was in such a, like everything was moving so fast for me and I was just looking and staring at my circumstances and I was driving down the road and I passed this church marquee sign, which I hate church marquee signs, but one time it actually did some good. It said, where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there also. And for me, that was like a light bulb going off. And it was as if I heard God's voice saying, you know what, your honor does not come from these people. Your, your position does not come from these people. Put your eyes back on me. And I realized that it was all about my, my calling and, and following of God. And it didn't matter who was actually there. And I went through and we started this ministry and we were, um, had a successful seven-year run before I, I went off to seminary. But it was a dark place for me. And I think sometimes when we go through these dark places, it's so easy for us to just put our eyes on the circumstances. You know, like when a, a college football player goes into the pros, like the game is just running really fast and they can't like catch up to the game. And there's this point where when we see our circumstances, when we're in these valleys, we look at our surrounding and we say, man, I, I can't catch up with this. This is all going so fast. And God just says, just look up here at me. And things slow down. We put our eyes where they're supposed to be. That's what David does here. He looks at this and he says, you know what, I'm not going to be anxious about this because I've cried out to God before when I was in this valley and God has rescued me. He has proven himself to be faithful. So when I look at my surroundings and my circumstances, I'm not going to freak out because I have God on my side and God can step in and rescue me. And David asks, be gracious to me. And the word gracious here in the participle form means one who gives generously. And David is just looking at God and he says, you know what, God, you are generous. It's your very character of who you are. You are a generous person, so I'm not going to freak out when I'm in this, this valley. I'm just going to depend on you because I know you're generous and you are a father who gives good gifts to his children. And that's what he does. He knows that God will deliver him. And when David faces adversity, you'll notice that the first thing he does is he just drops to his knees and he prays. He calls out to God. He prays. What do we run to in our times of distress? What do you go to? What's your first reaction when, when you're just stressed out at your circumstances and things are going bad, when you're in those valleys? What's your first reaction? I think in our culture, 
probably the first instinct is just to depend on ourselves. We get all this self-confidence and we boost ourselves up. We say, you know, I can do this and I'm gonna just ramp through whatever obstacle this is in my way. And, and like if we were in this circumstance where, you know, the crops were not, we would just be out in that field and we'd be like, uh-uh, these crops aren't gonna go bad. I don't care if there's a drought or not. I'm gonna carry out buckets of water and I'm gonna water this field. And you know, we just pull up our bootstraps and we get to work. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with self-confidence. There's nothing wrong with getting to work. But what is your first instinct? Where do you go to first? Do you depend upon yourself or do you get on your knees and pray instantly? I think the seasons of the, the dark times for me, one of the things that it did is it prepared me for, for later on in life. And it's interesting when you plan a church and even when we, we signed up to do the, the school and we're like, okay, we have nowhere to meet for the summertime. And we couldn't find another place. And it's, you can look at those circumstances and, and freak out. And it's like, you just look back at those times. You say, you know what? God has been faithful in the past. He has rescued me. He has delivered me before. And he will do it again. So when you face those adversities, when you face those valleys, you don't need to freak out. You can remember, just recall things in your mind where God has been faithful in the past and rest in those to stand in those things. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is what we see David doing here. He's resting in God. And, and the first thing he does is he cries out to God. He cries out twice. First to God to rescue him. The second thing is he cries out for um, Oh, men, which he says, which I'll get into in a minute, he cries out for them to kind of respond and, and turn, from, um, turn from their other gods and turn back to God. Look at verse 2. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. When he says, O men here, this is not like a general statement for humanity. This is actually addressing the, the elders, like the leaders of Israel. So what you had happening was you had David, who was king, who was appointed by God and called to lead Israel. And then you had these other leaders who were kind of leading them off in the other direction and saying, you know what? God can't be trusted. God can't be trusted, so let's just ignore David here and let's just run to these other things and we will find rest in other things rather than in our king and in our God. So the, what these men did when they did this, they did two things. First, they scoffed at David as, as Israel's king. And the second thing they did was they characterized themselves by a pursuit of what is vain. They pursued lies. They pursued delusions and deceptive false gods, false security, false confidence. They get all this and they're false gods. And what happens next is a series of seven imperatives that David exhorts the leaders to respond to. He says, No, be angry, do not sin, ponder, be silent, offer, and trust. And I wish I had time to break down all of these, but I want to focus on two because I feel like this is bookended by two very important imperatives. The first one is to know. The second one is to trust. So let me begin with trust because what David is calling them 
to, um, I'm sorry, let me begin with no. What David is, is pointing the leaders to is a renewed understanding of Yahweh. This was their covenant God. This is the one who had made a covenant. This is the one who freed them from slavery in Israel. This is the one who led them out into the promised land. This is the one who provided for them when they were in the wilderness. This is the Yahweh, the one who has been faithful before. And he points them back to know. But what the, the word know here is, the word know here um, is not simply an intellectual knowledge about God. It is an experience knowledge of God that only happens through relationship. The Hebrew word, it means an experienced knowledge of God that only happens through relationship. You know, Angela and I have been married for 11 years now. We've been together for almost 15 years. And when I got married to Angela 11 years ago, I thought I knew Angela. You know, I knew who she was. But after 11 years of marriage for us, you know, having tragedy strike in our life, um, you know, there's just something about living with someone and experiencing life when you go through the valleys together, when you know how they're going to respond in certain situations, when you know what makes them tick, when you know how they feel love. There is something that happens in a relationship with someone that you just grow in your knowledge of who they are. That isn't just some facts. Like if somebody asked me, um, tell me about your wife, I'd say, well, she's five foot seven. She's about 120 pounds. She has black hair, brown eyes, daughter of Dewey and Denise. I mean, what would that tell you? You could find that out by just looking at her Facebook profile, right? I'm not telling you any kind of information, but when, when I have a knowledge of my wife that comes through relationship, when I know what makes her tick, when I know how she's going to react in certain situations, there is a, is a deeper understanding and a knowledge of who she is that only comes by experience in our relationship. And I hope that when I get 20 years down the road that I'm going to know her even deeper. You know, for some of you in this room, you can... When you're asked questions about God, you can spot off all the right answers. You know the answers. You've been studying them. But, but what about the relationship? What have you learned through the relationship of, of this experience of God? What David has done here is, is, is he has learned so much about God, mostly through the darkest times of his life. If you read Psalms, David went through many dark times in his life. But that's why he can have confidence for where he's at because he looks at a situation here and he says, you know what? God is faithful. I don't care what's happening around here. God has been faithful before and he will deliver me again. That can only happen through an experience as you live your life with God. When Nate and I were called to, to start this church together, like we, we didn't really know each other very well. We, we met in an airport, which we really, we didn't even talk until we sat down for uh, lunch one day. And, um, you know, besides a, a few days of us spending together and figuring out what this vision was going to be, we didn't know each other. And we were still living in Florida and we were planning on moving up here in June of that year and Nate's father passed away. And I don't know if you knew this, but Nate's parents lived in Mount Dora, which was less than two hours from where we lived. So when they came down there, we were able to go up and hang out with their, their kids and their family and play in the park one day. And I was able to come back to the funeral. And there was something about that experience together that like when tragedy, tragedy strikes, when you're in this low valley and you walk with somebody, there's a good knowledge that happens over there. I was able to see how you know, Nate cared for and led his family well. I'm, I'm sure for Nate on his side, he knew that, man, if, if something bad happens, the Casey's going to come alongside me and that's going to happen. That only happens through an experience. 
you know, we'd love to change those circumstances of what that was, but that, for us to move our family up here and plant this church in Madison, this experience, even in a tragedy, in a dark time of us walking through something together was, was really key in our relationship to helping to start and plant this church. So David instructs the leaders to, to not, not just know things about God, but, but to know the Lord to experience that, to live life together, to remember the times that he's been faithful in their lives. And, and he tells them, he says, you know, stop speaking with your mouth these vain words and lies and be silent. Ponder in your own hearts, search your hearts. Remember who Yahweh is and what he's done. I know things are difficult, but God is faithful to his children. Trust God to deliver. He's done it before and he will do it again. That's his message for Israel and for the leaders of Israel. You know, this is a stance that Israel should have been, they should have taken this all along. They knew Yahweh. They knew God. They had this relationship with him. They walked with him many times. He had rescued them many times. They should have known this already. But yet when they came to the valley, they just sought all kinds of other things rather than turning to God. This stance that should have been known, this, this trusting, this is really like putting flesh on the bones of relationship. It's really putting flesh, this trusting is, is placing hope and confidence for deliverance in the Lord alone. So David calls out to God for deliverance, and then he calls out the leaders to turn to God. And finally, the psalm turns from criticizing the counsel of men to David's own confident joy in the Lord in his provision. Look at verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Who will show us some good, David says. And, and the who that, that he's talking about right here is, is who they're running to when things go bad. The who represents the many gods and goddesses of the pagan religion, Pantheon. It's just kind of like a pantheism of today. In Pantheon, what they would do is they would just look to all these different gods for emotional or even things in nature, and they had gods for the sun, gods for the moon, gods for prosperity, um, gods that would um, help them have babies. They, I mean, they just had gods all across the board, and it was like this, this smorgasbord a la carte, and they could just come on and pick up whatever god they want. I mean, for a consumeristic culture like we have today, that, that just sounds appetizing, doesn't it? Whatever god I need, that's who I'm going to run to. And that's what you see Israel doing here. They're just doing like an a la carte thing, and they're like, okay, let's go to the gods that will help our crops grow, that will give us wine and grain. These people were seeking other gods in hopes that the crops would increase. They were looking for the best deal. You know, I think we kind of do this too, a little bit. When we seek after idols, when we, we look for other things to fulfill us and fill those voids and, and we're going through those dark times, we just look out for all kinds of other things. And, you know, maybe that's uh, drinking. You know, maybe you put yourself on the bottom of a bottle and that's just going to wipe away the pain. That's going to get me through this valley. Uh, maybe it's sports for you. Maybe you're, you're so, like, in, in tuned with sports and what's going on that that is your salvation. And if your team loses on a Sunday, you're destroyed. But if they can win, it kind of pulls you out of that valley for just a little bit. Maybe it's eating, maybe it's medication. There's all kinds of ways we fill these voids in these valleys and replace where only God should be with other things in our lives. You know, maybe it's money or power or drugs or control or sex or approval or other relationships. All kinds of things that we fill 
this void instead of turning to where we should, turning to the only one who can truly help us. And David tells us where we should turn. He says in verse 6, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. To see God's face was to be in his presence. When it talks about God's face and his face shining, that was to be in his presence. It was to be walking with him. And when God removed his presence, when he he removed the blessing that came, when, when they turned away to false gods, it was leaving people to experience life in a destructive world by themselves. It was leaving them to depend upon themselves instead of God. And when we see the light of God's face, it means that we experience a benefit and joy that comes from being in his presence alone. Nothing can bring us the same sense of relationship, of peace, of joy, of security, or safety. Nothing can bring us that like God can, being in his presence And David goes on to say in verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I love that. It's almost like a dual meaning in in that one statement because David compares two things. First, he compares his heart, which is filled with joy that comes from God, and then he compares it to the hearts of these leaders who are calling out to false gods. And what you see going on in their hearts is, is they're filled with sinful anger, they're led astray by vain words and lies, and they're falling, um, they seek after false gods. Their hearts are filled with rebellion and plotting against King David and against God. And then the second thing David does is he compares the joy in his own heart to that which comes from having uh, an abundance of grain and wine. So what you have here is you have Israel who has turned away from God, and they're seeking fulfillment in other things. They're like we need to get through this valley. Let's just seek other things and we'll seek after this. And if those false gods can deliver, which they won't be able to, and then eventually Israel will turn back to God. But if they could actually deliver what David is saying, that even if these false gods deliver, I still have more joy than you're possibly going to get, even if you have this abundance of wine and this abundance of grain. Even if, if these false gods deliver, you will still not experience as much joy as I have in my heart because of the relationship that I have with God. Think about that for a second. The gods they sought were lying and they could never deliver on that promise. But David says, you know what? If you would just turn back to God, he would give you more than you could ever imagine because he can. We have a God who owns the world and yet we're pleased to seek after other things that can't possibly fulfill us. I love Psalm 50. It says, For every beast of the forest is mine. And this is God speaking. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world in its fullness are mine. God owns everything and he can deliver anything he wants. He can give good gifts to his children and yet Israel still turns and runs to other things. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's kind of what we do when we seek after other things to fill that gap that only God can do. We're seeking for things that can't possibly measure that. 
We're just far too easily pleased by the things of this world when we should have this, this infinite joy that comes with a relationship in God alone. These false gods cannot deliver true joy to Israel. Our false securities, our false confidence cannot lead us to true, to true joy. The only way we can get better is if we stop looking at ourselves, stop looking at ourselves to save us, and start looking to the Lord to deliver for that. This is what David has done in his own life, and look at the results in verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, will make me dwell in safety. So what you see David doing here is he is giving credit where credit is due. He's acknowledging that, you know what, I could seek after these other gods like everybody else is doing, but, but you are the only one who's really going to give me safety. You are the only one who can actually deliver. And even though my circumstances are crazy, even though everything is going really fast around me and I'm in this valley, I'm not going to freak out. I, I'm not going to lay sleepless in my bed. I'm going to lie down and I'm going to have peace because I have you. That's what David's saying right here. Whereas foes were told to ponder and be silent in their beds, David could rest because the Lord was with him, even when his circumstances were dark. He had utmost confidence in God to deliver. The same is true for us. Um, except for we have that even in a greater degree because where David lived, they were, they were living in, in a promise of someone who was going to ultimately deliver from all of those things. And we live in the shadow of that. We live after the cross. So we can see that, that God has ultimately stepped in and delivered us from the two things we need delivery from the most, and that's sin and death. And Jesus has come in and stepped into that place for us. And, and just knowing that Jesus came to rescue us, just knowing that when we, we cried out and there was nowhere else to go, that God himself came down and took our place on the cross, that he died for us so that we can live. I mean, that should give us security in itself that no matter how dark of a valley we're going through, that, that we can look back at the cross and say, man, we've already been delivered ultimately. What can this world do to me? They can't do anything because I have Christ. It should give us confidence in that. But our true confidence should come from God alone. You know, the Christian life isn't about just um, seeking these, these emotional highs to seek these mountaintop experiences. I see a lot of Christians that kind of live that way, where unless I'm on the mountaintop, I'm probably doing something wrong. But living a Christian life is, is about living every single day with Jesus at our side, to live a life with him. Whether we're on the mountaintop, whether we're in the mundane things of everyday life, or whether we're in the dark valleys, that we are still living with Jesus. And when we do that, we learn from our experience, we learn from this wisdom, we see that God is faithful. We see that he delivers, even in the small things, but especially when we're in the valleys, that we can see that he is, he is able. And sometimes he, he's willing, so we can cry out, no matter what our prayer is, and have confidence he's going to answer. Sometimes he doesn't give us what we're asking for, but God can deliver from the valleys. We can have confidence that he will do that because he has proven himself faithful. He has proven himself that he can. And he has proven himself that he will answer our call. So if you're in one of those valleys right now, I just plead, just go to God first. 
fall on your knees, plead with God, call for deliverance, ask him to step into your situation because he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are going through those valleys right now, when we have those moments like David is facing right here where our circumstances are, are dark and difficult, Father, I ask that you show up, that you will show them that you are faithful to your promise, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will always be with us. Show us that you can deliver us from, from anything. What can the world do to us? So Father, bring us to our knees, but I ask that you help us to fall to our knees even when times are good. That prayer might be a part of who we are, that that might be a part of our rhythm of, of who we are as Christ followers, that we, we seek you because we know that you are sovereign, that you are in control of all things, and that you are faithful to deliver. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who, who rescued us. Help us have our confidence in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.